0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. My guest today is Ambassador Susan Rice. She served for eight years during the Clinton administration, including as the youngest assistant secretary of state in the history of the State Department, Later, she returned to the White House as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and the National Security Advisor to President Obama. Susan Rice has been at the table during the most pressing international crises of the past 30 years, and along the way, she's encountered her fair share of controversy and conspiracy theories. Now she writes about all that and much more in her new memoir titled, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. And today, Ambassador Rice joins me on the podcast to talk about her family's unique American story and how playing peacekeeper during her parents' troubled marriage made her grow up fast, but it also gave her an early crash course in diplomacy. She talks about her baptism of fire when she joined the Clinton administration and immediately got thrown in the deep end with back-to-back crises in Somalia and Rwanda. She describes the U.S. Embassy bombings in 1998 as the hardest day of her career, talks about her contentious relationship with Ambassador Richard Holbrook and how she got roped into taking the hit for the Obama White House following the 2012 attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, Libya. Plus, she speculates on what might have motivated President Trump to suddenly pull out of northern Syria. She says Vladimir Putin is a creep and a pig, and she talks about her famous moves on the dance floor. Coming up with Ambassador Susan Rice in just a moment. Susan Rice was National Security Advisor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations under President Barack Obama. Previously, during the Clinton administration, she served on the National Security Council as Director for International Organizations and Peacekeeping, then Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for African Affairs before becoming Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Ambassador Rice is currently a Distinguished Visiting Research Fellow at the School of International Service at American University, a non-resident fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Now Susan Rice is out with a compelling new memoir titled, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Ambassador Rice, welcome.
1: Thanks, Ben. It's great
0: to be with you. Well, I'm just going to start with what I think everyone probably wants to know. You served two different presidents over, I want to say, probably about a collective 16 years. Have you at any point in your career ever thought that you might have to file a whistleblower report on your commander-in-chief? No. No? <laughs> Not even close? No, fortunately. Okay. Not even close. Well, let me ask you, does President Trump's Ukraine scheme now make you possibly question all the other weird and inexplicable moves that he's made, oftentimes seemingly out of the blue and without any prior knowledge from his own advisors.
1: Well, I think, Ben, Ukraine, Northern Syria, his comments inviting China to interfere in our elections are really just the most recent and obvious manifestations that something is really wrong. Mm -hmm. And there are many different policy Decisions, moves, statements that the president has made that clearly don't accord with the national interest that mm-hmm. seemingly have no explanation. Why is uh, so much of what he does beneficial to Putin and Russia mm-hmm. and run directly counter to U.S. interests? Syria is a very, you know, proximate example, but so is Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we have a president who denigrates? the institutions of the United States, whether it's the intelligence community or law enforcement, uh, Congress, the courts, the press, uh, and lifts up you know, those of the autocrats um, and behaves in autocratic ways. Something is amiss here, and it's more than Donald Trump's temperament. Uh, it's more than you know, what he purports to be an America first foreign policy. It all boils down to a me first, approach to governing, where he's using the office for his own personal political or perhaps financial benefit. And he's doing it to the detriment of our national cohesion, our democracy, and our global leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, nobody yet has all the evidence that connects the dots. But what is clear is that Trump is transactional. His transactions are to benefit himself, not the United States. Um, And yes, we should be questioning every single one of these um, seemingly inexplicable choices or decisions that the president has made along the way um, that just don't add up. Hmm. We don't have a president who seems to be about serving the United States. Instead, he seems to be about undermining it. And there's something, you know, grotesquely wrong with that that we all need to understand and, and, and deal with.
0: But please, let's talk about Benghazi and Obama's tan suit. <laughs> you know? That's what really matters, doesn't it? Exactly,
1: especially the tan suit.
0: <laughs> Do you ever sit there and just wonder how much flack President Obama would have gotten over just an average day in the Trump White House?
1: I mean, you, you try not to lose your mind by thinking the obvious thought, like what the hell would they be saying if Obama had done this? But I, I, that, I confess, I think every day. It's just, you know, Obama got criticized for waking up in the morning Uh, and yet, you know, Trump's misogyny and his attacks on women and all these things that, you know, we continue to see below the fold on the, you know, the inside of the paper, um, which in the grand scheme, you know, ought to be huge issues or scandals and get relegated to ho-hum. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, and what's worse about it is, in my opinion, the, the hypocrisy of Republican leadership in Congress, which uh, would not miss an opportunity uh, to make a big deal out of completely little stuff, but now have lost their guts or their principles or both. Yeah. Because it, they've blown all the standards mm-hmm. away. And now, right. you know, the, even the fundamental stuff like the notion that the executive branch needs to comply with congressional subpoenas. Mm-hmm. You know, it would never have occurred to us uh, to defy writ large yeah. subpoenas across the board. Yeah. Or any prior administration, not just the Obama administration, Republican or Democrat, mm-hmm. that we would never have done that. Now Congress is essentially validating the executive branch's uh, trashing of, of mm-hmm. the. Uh, you know, of the Article I institution.
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to listen to anyone who carries one of these pocket constitutions in their, <laughs> in their back pocket.
1: The pious defenders, but, yeah. which we all ought to be.
0: Yeah. When you were UN ambassador under Obama, you had to do quite a lot of heavy lifting early on in terms of mending bridges with other nations after the war in Iraq. How much harder is that job going to be this time around, and what kind of advice would you give to the next president?
1: The next president or the U- next U.N. ambassador or both?
0: Both. Okay.
1: Well, the U.N. ambassador obviously is playing a role that's a- an extension of mm-hmm. the, uh, the policies of a new president or next president. It's going to be so much harder. I mean, frankly, when I became U.N. ambassador, as I write about in uh, Tough Love in 2009, uh, there was some repair work to do. John Bolton was my predecessor once removed. He'd broken a huge amount of crockery in New York, uh, the decision to go to war uh, with Iraq without UN authorization, um, and to to trash many of our allies in Europe as you know chocolate eaters, old school, not worthy, <laughs> all that stuff. And Freedom fries. Yeah. You know th- that had a lingering effect, and so there was some repair work to do, and particularly to show that we cared about the institution of the United Nations and were prepared to. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooperate and roll up our sleeves. But it was nothing like what we're facing now. Those were policy differences and differences of uh, of approach. But we weren't facing uh, a prior administration that had literally blown up all the rules and norms and, and arrogated to themselves the authority of the office for the personal political benefit of a president. Each one of the prior administrations, president both President Bush's administrations, Clinton, obama go all the way back whether you like their policies or not they were doing what they thought was best in the national interest and that is what's fundamentally different now so when a new president knock on wood uh comes along he or she is going to have to take extraordinary steps to try to repair the damage and we have to be sober about this it's not going to be repaired by the actions of one administration or one president because what we've said to the world is we're capable of electing somebody who blows up the system, and we're going to have a very hard time convincing the world that Mm -hmm. we wouldn't do it again. Mm -hmm. And what's worse is that the guardrails, particularly in Congress, um, where the Republicans have put party over country, haven't worked. So when people look at the United States and say, okay, well, they maybe had a you know, whack president, but, it, you know, they have the institutions of separations of power and all this stuff that will keep things on track, and it hasn't worked.
0: So it's not a case where we can just say Trump was an aberration, trust us again. Well, it's we'll, new s- we'll say that, and we'll,
1: we may believe <laughs> yeah. it, but it'll be hard to convince people of that. So we've got to focus on repairing our relationships, our alliances mm-hmm. in particular. We've got to tell the truth and be yeah. transparent in how we govern. There are all sorts of things that we have to do to sort of get back to status quo ante and then be patient and recognize that there's a good reason why countries are going to be slow to buy into where we are and where we say we want to go.
0: Well, let's talk about this wonderful new memoir, Tough Love. Your relationship with your parents sort of makes up the emotional heart of the book. And you spend a good portion of the book talking about your fascinating family history. Your mom and dad were the products of two very different versions of the black American experience. Can you talk a little about them and how their background shaped your own ideas about race and equality in America?
1: Well, my father uh, came from a family that were the descendants of slaves in segregated South Carolina. Mm -hmm. He was born around 1920 uh, into the heart of Jim Crow and the the most raw excesses of of, uh, segregation. Um, But he had been the grandson of a slave and my great grandfather Walter Rice, um, who had been a slave after emancipation, fought in the Union Army, and then got a college education, which was extraordinary in that context. And then founded a school in New Jersey called the Bordentown School in the early in the late 1880s, which for 70 years educated generations of African Americans in vocational skills and college preparatory skills. Wow. And then, you know, and so my father was, you know, in a long line of educators and ministers. And by the time he came along, he said, I don't want to be a minister. Uh, And he became an economist. Uh, And that was after he um, served in World War II at Tuskegee with the Tuskegee Airmen. And that experience really shaped him because he was, uh, he was very resentful of the fact that African Americans had to prove to white people that they could do the obvious and fly as well as they could or fight in combat as well as they could. And he resented the notion that he was supposed to serve in a a military that was uh, fighting for freedom for everybody but his own people. And he'd go off base to try to get something to eat in a restaurant and he couldn't be served but German POWs were being served. Mm -hmm. And so this whole experience of being diminished and Uh, doubted and denigrated um, shaped him quite profoundly and yet he went on to get his PhD in economics, he went on to be a professor of economics at Cornell and to serve at the Treasury Department and the World Bank and in the private banking sector and ultimately as a governor of the Federal Reserve and over time he learned um, one, that this still despite his experiences and that of many other African Americans is in his judgment the best country on the face of the earth and only in this country could he have achieved what he achieved and passed on those benefits to his children. Um, but he also developed a mindset about race that came from having been the victim of racial oppression that he that I think enabled him to thrive. And he passed it on to me and my brother. And that is in in short, if my being black is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem for somebody else, not me. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm not going to let other people's prejudice get in my head and cause me to diminish my own self image, uh, or to, yeah. to cause me to doubt myself. Um, yeah. What,
0: it, what was his motto? Don't take any crap. Don't, that lot, yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't take crap off of anyone. That was his whole thing.
1: Don't take crap off anyone. Believe in <laughs> yeah. yourself and push back. Mm-hmm. So that was his experience. My mom was, uh, the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica who came to Portland, Maine, of all places, (laughs) in 1912. They had nothing, janitor and a maid, no education, but they came here for the American dream like so many others. They had five kids, sent them all to college, two became doctors, one a university president, one an optometrist, and then my mom, who was the baby, um, who went on to be a leader in the corporate world. Um, And more importantly, uh, she was known as the mother of the Pell Grant program, meaning she helped get college access for 80 million Americans. Um, so on both sides of the family, just sort of this compulsion to rise, a determination not to be kept down, um, and a real commitment to service and about contributing to society in a way that is broader than yourself. And by the time my brother and I came along in the mid-60s, um, you know, my parents had risen, as their parents had, and our experience was far more comfortable um, than theirs had been, but we were taught that we had to work hard, we had to get an education, we were supposed to excel, and goddammit, you know, we couldn't slack. Yeah. So, we you, you had <laughs> to, had to do our love. best, <laughs> yeah, yeah, total tough love. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it, it made us, it made us strong, and it gave us a sense of what we could be.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, your parents had a troubled marriage and a rather contentious custody battle. You recall having to grow up <laughs> fast and play sort of peacekeeper between them. You were, it was, I guess it was sort of early preparation for a life in diplomacy.
1: I had no idea at the time, but yeah. you're absolutely right. It was really, I mean, I, their fighting was violent and intense and, and scary. And I was really seven years old or or about that age when I had a consciousness of what was going on. And I had a younger brother who was sort of two years younger than me and not really um, able to understand it as well as I could. So I'd be trying to go to bed at night, and I'd be awakened by screaming and yelling and things being thrown, and I'd go downstairs and I'd kind of peek around the corner and try to figure out what was going on. Um, and and intervene if necessary, to so break them up or to mediate and try to say, you know, what's this about, and literally negotiate. I had no idea at the time that those would be skills that I'd have to use later in life, but it was a, a really formative experience because it taught me, one, to be resilient and to not let something as painful and, and destructive as a breakup of your family um, cause me never to be able to Fulfill my uh, my potential, but so resilience was one thing, but also you know recognizing that being a firefighter, getting in between you know <laughs> warring parties was something that yeah. maybe I I had an early <laughs> faculty for.
0: Yeah, and after that you were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and then spent some time in the private sector. I think working for McKinsey and Company before 1992, when the Clinton transition team asks you to join the NSC as, I believe, Director of International Organizations and Peacekeeping. That position then puts you right in the middle of back-to-back crises, the Civil War in Somalia and the Rwandan genocide. As someone who was brand new to government service, that has to have been a real baptism of fire for you. It
1: was exactly that. That That's the right way to put it, a baptism by fire. And there are other elements of that baptism that I don't even have the opportunity to get into in the book, like Bosnia, like Haiti. Um, But... I write at length about Somalia and Rwanda because they shape me very profoundly. Um, Black Hawk Down and the the fact that Congress, after we lost 18 Americans uh, in a horrific attack uh, on our uh, personnel in Mogadishu, required the administration to withdraw all U.S. military personnel by within six months. Mm -hmm. And, you know...
0: And a lot of the blame for that fell on him. It was presented as if the president was the one who was cutting and running.
1: Yeah. President Clinton was accused of cutting and running, but it was Congress that mandated that he cut and run, if that's Mm -hmm. the the term you want to use. And then seven days after the last American serviceman was evacuated from Somalia, we had the beginning of the genocide in Rwanda. Um, And... I write at, at some length about that as well because the experience of visiting Rwanda after the genocide and seeing yeah. bodies, corpses, just still thick on the ground, and also you know watching as a junior staffer as you know the decision-making process at at the National Security Council really failed to grapple with the question of whether or not the United States could intervene to. Uh, to try to halt the genocide or whether we ought to help others to intervene or any of these questions were never asked, much less answered. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot, both from the experience of Somalia and Rwanda, about how the decision-making process can fail. Um, and um, those were lessons, as well as you know the, the mm-hmm. challenge of how do you deal with humanitarian crises that I took with me later into my career um, as... I served in the Obama administration at the U.N. and as national security advisor.
0: Mm. The way you've just phrased it, it sounds like you see it as it was more a case of the administration didn't really know if they had the authority to intervene, right? No, it wasn't whether they had the authority. Okay. It, it, okay. And,
1: and that's Now we're getting into a lot of complexity, but okay. When, the point I was making was nobody in government in Washington, nobody in the Congress, no editorial page writers were grappling with the question of whether or not the United States should intervene oh, okay. to deal with okay. the genocide. So this was saying. a case where the policy process failed because mm-hmm. we didn't even you know, ask and answer the, the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do it in large part because I think people were still traumatized by Somalia. They, it never occurred to people, frankly, uh, to contemplate another Massive military intervention in an even more remote part of Africa after we'd basically had this humili- humiliating retreat from Somalia. So okay. Somalia, the problem was, you know, w- multiple, but we didn't pay enough attention right. to what was going on, on the ground. That's a summary statement,
0: right? And it wasn't a problem that you guys started. No, it. <laughs> no, inherited no
1: exactly. We you inherited know. Rwanda. The, the the failure, in my judgment, was that we didn't even consider the question of whether or not to engage in terms of trying to stop the killing Mm -hmm. um and so whether or not you know we needed u.n security council authorization that would have been a question we would have asked and answered after a decision that we wanted to do something okay but it it, it, we didn't even get to that point
0: we're going to take a quick break and then i'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute Hey folks, technology is constantly changing, and if you have a business like I do, you know all too well that you either change with it or you die. It used to be that a company didn't exist unless it was in the phone book, and then a company didn't exist if it wasn't on the internet. But nowadays, people are spending less time on their computers and more time on their mobile devices, which means it's absolutely essential to have an attractive and easy-to-use mobile app. If you're looking for a product design and development company to help you build your next app, Mutual Mobile is the company for you. Mutual Mobile has designed and built over 600 mobile and web apps powering many Fortune 500 companies and high-growth startups around the world today. Founded over 10 years ago, Mutual Mobile has partnered with Under Armour, Clorox, Alamo Drafthouse, KitchenAid, and more. This company is the best-kept secret of web design and development. Well, at least until now. Now, we all know about the pain of hiring a freelancer or a new employee only to find out months later that it's not a fit, but Mutual Mobile has a refined process so they get it done right the first time. And if you're anything like me, that's precisely what you need. Because what do I know about creating a mobile app or what customers are looking for in that sort of thing? I'm no tech whiz. And who wants to spend all the time and money to build their own team? That's not efficient. But that's exactly why Mutual Mobile is such a lifesaver. Spanning business-to-business, consumer, and industry segments, their teams champion custom digital product management, user experience best practices, visual and interactive design, and integrated technical operational development capabilities. Mutual Mobile's teams work alongside their partners from strategy building to product delivery to create impactful and scalable mobile experiences. If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Mutual Mobile at MutualMobile.link kick to get started. That's MutualMobile.link kick. Hey folks, I am so excited to talk to you about my new sponsor. I've been recommending Chili products to friends for years now. They literally changed my life and now I am a true believer. Did you know that one of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation? Chili makes both the Chili Pad and Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto clean. While the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. I used to get horrible sleep. I'd wake up several times a night, hot, sweaty, and frustrated, tossing the comforter off. But then my wife got me what is to this day still the very best birthday gift that I've ever received, a Chili Pad, and I've slept like a baby ever since because it keeps me cool all through the night. It's not uneven like air conditioning. It cools me right in my immediate space where I sleep. And now my sheets actually hold the cool in rather than making me hot at night. Now, if you, on the other hand, like to sleep warmer, chili has you covered there too. But for me, there's just nothing like getting nice and cozy when it's chilly. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees and I love it. Chili really did change my life for the better and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chili kick you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C H I L I technology.com/kick with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chili-technology.com/kick and offer code KICK. Folks, you've heard me talk before about how much I love my Chili Pad. I'm so happy that they decided to advertise on the show because I have been sleeping cool with their patented Chili Pad for a couple of years now, and it has dramatically improved my sleep. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the Chili Pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, chilly sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my chilly sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But chili pad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire, consistently, and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com slash kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C-H-I-L-I technology slash KICK with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash KICK and offer code KICK. Warning, high-potency supplements aren't for everyone. But if you're intent on continuous improvement and accomplishing health and wellness goals, then you need to meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These quality vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. No magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide zero artificial colors flavors or sweeteners visit vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or any of the vitamin shop stores to level up your health routine and show your body some major love with solutions like active flex plus featuring clinically studied ingredients like a prey and types one and two collagen to help fuel healthy joints tendons and ligaments and deliver results you can feel Discover their most advanced formulas, bioactive men's and women's multivitamins with immune supporting vitamins C and D plus zinc and everything else to fill in the nutrient gaps. And explore heart healthy, full spectrum fish oils made from wild caught U.S. sourced Alaskan pollock. Plus, new for 2020, advanced nootropic formula for cognitive function, energy production, and up to five hours of improved alertness. Find them all and more. At vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast. That's vitamin, S H O P P E dot com forward slash podcast. Or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. Now, you described the 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania as the hardest moment of your life. Walk us through those first 24 hours from your perspective.
1: Well, was horrible. I mean, first of all, I start in describing this in, in Tough Love with the night before the bombings. And I'm relatively new in the job of Assistant Secretary of State for wow. African Affairs. I'm 32 years old. Uh, I'm a breastfeeding mom in a, a department where most of the people who report to me are 20 to 30 years my elders and predominantly white men. And we're struggling already with a a rash of crises that have broken out, war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, war in the Congo, um, evacuations being required in Liberia. I mean, it's like I could go through a litany about six or seven things that were all crushing in on us at the same time. And that night before the embassy bombings, I I had dinner with my former boss, uh, the former national security advisor, Anthony Lake. And I was describing to him all these things that were going on and how it felt like A crushing amount of pressure and he said to me rather than offering me comfort it can always get worse i was like great thanks (laughs) so uh, we said goodbye go to bed four in the morning my phone rings it's the state department operations center waking me up to tell me that there'd been two simultaneous explosions at our embassies in kenya and tanzania and there were lots and lots of casualties and i you know obviously jump out of bed in and out of the shower and on my way to the State Department within about 10 or 15 minutes, to have to confront uh, the reality that we had lost 12 Americans in Kenya, over 200 Kenyans killed, um, and thousands gr- grievously wounded. Our embassy was you know, leveled, and similarly in Tanzania. But unfortunately, we didn't lose Americans in Tanzania. Um, it was horrible. And uh, and the pressure, uh, you know, on all sides, dealing with the counterterrorism challenge, dealing with the families of those who had uh, loved ones in our embassies, dealing with the embassies on the ground, which were, you know, struggling to just get information. I can imagine. Um, that was really the, the the worst period of my professional life. And as bad as it was for me, it's nothing like it was, obviously, for the people who lost their loved yeah. ones and for my colleagues who served in those embassies.
0: Well, one of your recurring nemesis in this book, <laughs> both during the Clinton and Obama administrations, is Ambassador Richard Holbrook. He had a reputation for being famously gruff and ill-tempered. You describe him as a bully. What was his problem with you?
1: Well, I do describe him as a bully, and I, I don't shy from that characterization, <laughs> He was also a skilled diplomat, but he was very much about himself. Mm-hmm. And the, um, my first experience with him came as I was in this job as Assistant Secretary of State. He had just been uh, or recently been nominated to become the UN ambassador. And um, I am on Capitol Hill in a series of meetings with members of Congress and my assistant calls. And she says, Ambassador Holbrook is in your office and he's demanding that you come back to meet with him. I said, why is he in my office? And tell him I'm on the Hill, I'm meeting with members of Congress. I can't meet with him now. I'll schedule an appointment. And she says, he's not leaving. And I said, well, you know, make sure you don't steal anything. <laughs> Watch him. I'm, I'll come back when my meetings are over. So, about an hour and a half later or so, I get back to the State Department, and there he is sitting on the couch in my office. And I, again, never met him before. I knew all about him, I, he, his reputation preceded him. And I said to him, so what's so urgent that you're sitting here waiting for me on my couch? And I sit down, and he says, uh, I already dislike you because you've broken my record as the youngest regional assistant secretary. <laughs> and our relationship went wow. downhill from there. What an ego. Uh, and and it, 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 I think he found me to be insufficiently admiring or deferential. Uh-huh. Uh, more than willing to say what I think, which is true <laughs> about me, um, and not taking crap off of him,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as my dad taught yeah. me. Yeah, At and one point so you
0: flip him off in a meeting. Well, right? Exactly. <laughs> At
1: one point, uh, when he's trying to humiliate me and condescend to me, and it, as we were having an argument in front of uh, six or seven of my uh, of the ambassadors who reported to me, um, he said to me ex- with dripping with sarcasm and condescension when he was trying to disagree. I remember when I too was a young assistant secretary, just basically Very telling me to go crawl under a rock. Yeah. And so failing to, to find the words uh, quickly enough to express my feelings, I <laughs> raised my uh, arm and, and, and then my middle <laughs> finger and held it up long enough for him to understand what <laughs> I was trying to say.
0: Well, I want to fast forward to the 2008 election. Your next logical move, would have been for you to stay within the Clinton camp and support and advise Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. Instead, you joined the Obama team. How did you make that decision, and how did the Clinton team take that news?
1: Well, I uh, I came to know and admire Barack Obama uh, beginning in 2004 when he was running for the Senate. Uh, and I was working on John Kerry's presidential campaign. That's when we first interacted. Mm-hmm. And then when he won the Senate uh, seat and came to Washington, I got to know him quite a bit better and advised him and developed a, a, a rapport with him. And when he made it clear that he was going to run for president, I decided that I wanted to be all in in supporting him, not because I didn't love and respect my time in the Clinton administration and respect President Clinton and uh, and Senator Clinton, but because for me, Obama represented so much more. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a African-American leader of my generation. He was smart. He was principled. Uh, he had a vision for this country that I thought was forward-looking and unifying. Um, and it was on that basis, um, just being drawn to who he was and what his election could symbolize, that I made the decision to support him. And then unexpectedly after I made that decision, uh, I got a phone call from uh, another former boss of mine named Sandy Berger, who had also been uh, in uh, Clinton's second term, the national security advisor. And he was a friend. And he said that Senator Clinton would like me to uh, coordinate her foreign policy apparatus, essentially the same role I was playing for Obama. And I said, Sandy, you know, I've already signed up with Obama. Um, And it wasn't that he had Called too late. It was that I'd made this decision, perfectly witting of the fact that, you know, at some point the Clintons were going to know this and and not appreciate it. But I did it because it was the right choice for me. And so then he says, "But you realize he's not going to win, right?" And I said, "You know, I, I don't know whether he's going to win, but I recognize that that's a the betting man's uh, point of view." And he says, "You know, you're, this is a career-ending move. If you know when he loses." You're going to be screwed, in effect. And mm. he's telling me this as a friend. And I said, Sandy, I get that, but I'm doing this not for a job, but because this is really important to me. And that was the end of the conversation. We stayed friends, and it was all good. But um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that there were a, f- a number of people like me who'd served in the Clinton administration who chose to sign up with Obama early. Mm-hmm. And I do think it was for quite a while a sore spot mm-hmm. with uh, the loyalists of, yeah. of the Clintons.
0: And yet, once he got elected, uh, President Obama appoints you U.N. ambassador, and then I think right after he offers you the job, he says, what do you think about Hillary Clinton for Secretary of State? Exactly. And That's you how the, said she was a good choice. I so. did.
1: I said, if, she, if, if you would do that, I think so, it would be a good choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then we worked together closely
0: for four years. You then played an instrumental role in the U.S. intervention against Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. How much of that was influenced by this haunting memory of Rwanda and the cost of inaction?
1: Well, in my mind, at this point, with more years of of experience and hopefully some wisdom acquired along the way, my calculation was we had an opportunity to intervene at a relatively low cost to the United States. It wasn't going to require ground forces. We could do it through the air, and we could prevent... um, uh, Gaddafi from slaughtering tens of thousands of civilians, which was his stated intention, and his mm-hmm. forces were on the way to do it. Um, so that was relatively low risk and high reward mm-hmm. in terms of what it would accomplish in humanitarian terms. And so, and we also had the support of uh, NATO and the uh, Arab countries, and we obtained the support of the United Nations. When I was ambassador, I led that effort. And so, in my mind, the cost benefit uh, analysis. Argued in favor of intervention, um, and I still think that was the right thing to do. But uh, I made clear that you know we, the, the the problem, the failure, was really in the aftermath, um, where the United States and NATO and the, the African Union and the Arab countries and the UN failed to, to failed to act swiftly to try to help consolidate uh, the institutions of the state in a fractured society in Libya after Gaddafi was removed. Mm-hmm. He was the state, and in his absence, it was sort of uh, close to chaos. Yeah. And so the what, what we ideally would have done is put sustained effort and attention mm-hmm. with the international community into trying to consolidate the post-conflict situation. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do it with sufficient attention and urgency. And then Benghazi happened. And everybody in Washington sort of recoiled even further from Libya. And I say in the book, you know, Libya was so fractured a society. I don't know that if we had been 100% effective in our efforts that it would have worked. Mm -hmm. But what I do say is we don't know because we weren't Mm
0: -hmm.
1: able to try.
0: Yeah, I mean, professionally for you, maybe it would have been better if you'd left him in power. <laughs> you no. You wouldn't have had to no. deal and with it. And it's all not that. about me. <laughs> but, I'm
1: I will take saving tens of thousands yeah. of lives any day.
0: Well, still the Benghazi attack happens September eleventh, twenty twelve, and you get convinced to do what they call the full Ginsburg. Not convinced. Asked, well, okay, and I accept Okay. Which means uh, doing the all five of the Sunday show, Sunday morning shows you were the person who was assigned to articulate the Obama administration's account of what happened. This was not really in your portfolio. You were UN ambassador, and there were arguably other people who were more directly involved and better equipped to speak to what happened, yet you became the face of the controversy. Did you have any idea what you were walking into?
1: Well, Ben, really what what happened was the, uh, the White House called me on a Friday late afternoon before the Sunday shows, and they said, you know, we've asked Secretary Clinton if she'll do it. We haven't heard back from her, but if she says no, would you be willing to do it? Uh, and then they call back later and they say she said no. Would you do it? And I said, you know, this is not how I plan to spend my weekend. Uh, I was planning to take my kids to the Ohio State football game in Columbus, um, and but if nobody else is available and you need somebody to do it, I'll do it. Um, and so, to be honest, I wasn't thinking in terms of myself. I was thinking in terms of we've, as a team, as, you, as a country, we've suffered an extraordinary tragedy. We also had a lot of other issues going on as in demonstrations and um, protests against our embassies elsewhere in the Arab and Muslim world. The UN General Assembly, uh, which is the big annual gathering of the heads of state, where the UN ambassador is front and center, was coming up in about 10 days, and we were dealing with issues of Syria and Israel and Iran, uh, and so it wasn't completely crazy to ask me to do it. But it, ideally, somebody else would have uh, stepped up. But okay. when asked, I, you know, my instinct has always been to be a team player, mm-hmm. uh, and so I said yes reluctantly. And then I went to say to to look in on my mom, um, who had been very ill. She'd recently had her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and suffered a stroke. And I went buy her house just to say hello and spend some time with her before I got home. And she asked me what I was doing for the weekend. And I said, you know, I'm going to Ohio State, but I also just agreed to go on the Sunday shows. And she's like, why? Why you? Why not Hillary? (laughs) And then she kept going. I smell a rat. (laughs) And I'm like, Mom, don't be ridiculous. I've done this before. It's going to be fine. And, of course, it wasn't.
0: Never doubt mother's intuition. Exactly. So the lesson,
1: the primary (laughs) lesson of this episode is always listen to your mother yeah (laughs) but she perceived what i didn't in retrospect which Mm -hmm. is that whoever's out there in a hot conflict situation uh in a political hothouse delivering a message is the it's likely that the messenger is going to be attacked as much Mm -hmm. as the message and that's what happened yeah
0: and speaking of the toll this takes on the family apparently it also had i imagine what at, at the time must have seemed like a pretty frightening impact on your own young daughter can you talk a little yeah. about that
1: yeah and it was you know so in the wake of my sunday show appearances uh i became targeted as a liar as incompetent as untrustworthy all these things were uh you know the the sustained republican talking points against me and it was pretty uh intense and uh, interminable for many weeks and in the course of the the weeks following it my daughter came to me and my husband she was nine years old at the time uh, and she was complaining that she was seeing images of men coming out of walls at her wow uh and first we we're like you know, kind of skeptical and then she she kept repeating it um and we realized that she was having in effect hallucinations so obviously we took her to get a battery of tests at, at Children's Hospital, and over two weeks they were looking to try to figure out: you know, does she have a brain tumor? Uh, is there some side of some kind of psychosis or schizophrenia? Does she have a visual impairment? And we went through all these different worst-case scenarios, and they fortunately, over a period of a couple of weeks, were able to rule them out. Meanwhile, we we're terrified, you know, about what could be going on with her. She'd been, you know, totally happy and healthy up until that point. And once they ruled out all the worst-case scenarios, they essentially concluded that in all likelihood she was having a stress reaction to what had been happening to me. And we realized that, you know, we had the television on for too much of this. We were tuning it out, but our daughter wasn't necessarily able to tune it out and couldn't understand it really at that age. And so she was internalizing this stuff. Um, So I write about that in the book, not only because it was a, you know... (laughs) pretty heavy experience for me and my husband, but more importantly, I wanted to convey that when we have the politics of personal destruction in Washington, which happens, you know, uh, irrespective of party affiliation, Mm -hmm. the victims are not only the people who are targeted, but even more so the people who love the person who's being Mm -hmm. targeted. So my daughter, my mother also suffered a great deal, Um, and, and to a lesser extent, others in my family. And my point is that th- this politics of personal destruction don't come for free, and we ought to mm-hmm. be mindful of that.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think that you say that our greatest national security threat is actually the political divisions that we're having within our own country right now.
1: I, that is exactly what I say, and I believe it fervently. You know, w- we are at risk of losing our national cohesion and losing our democracy, um, because of these divisions, mm-hmm. and you know, they are preventing us from doing basic stuff like making investments in our infrastructure, in uh, in technology, so that we can compete with China. But it's also giving our adversaries like Russia a big opening to pour salt into our wounds, and you know, cause us to doubt each other, to hate each other, uh, to see one another as enemies rather than as fellow Americans. And I write about how that is a a huge challenge, but I also talk about how we have overcome so many more moments of division and disunity in our country that were worse than this, from the Civil War, you know, through McCarthyism to uh, Vietnam and the Civil Rights era. And I really believe we have the ability, if we have the will, to repair these divisions now. But it has to happen on every level from the individual and the interpersonal, as I share in my book, I've got a very conservative son and a very right. progressive daughter, and I'm <laughs> sitting in the middle of, with my husband yeah. at the dinner table trying to you know, keep things from flying across the table. <laughs> in the same vein, at an institutional and a national level, we have to take steps that yeah. I propose in the book that can help to, to bridge those divides um, and enable us to heal.
0: Well, another thing that comes up in the book that I kind of found an amusing revelation, uh, you say that no call with Vladimir Putin is short. I guess at times he would keep President Obama on the phone for 60, maybe even 90 minutes. What is he like in a one-on-one conversation?
1: Well, Putin is um, tedious (laughs) and uh, self-important. And, uh, you know, on these phone calls which were meant to deal with substantive issues uh, and that rarely lasted less than 90 minutes, in part because there was translation on both sides, but also because oh, okay. Putin's long-winded yeah. and um, you know, self-important. Um, they were dealing with issues of difference, like Ukraine, for example, or Syria. And the conversations were actually relatively civil and respectful, um, even where we differed, but they didn't yield a great deal. But I had also a lot of experience with Putin one-on-one and personally, right. and you said he was creep, a creep, Right? he's a creep, <laughs> he's a creep, he, <laughs> when, um, when I was uh, at a gathering in Normandy in 2014, where all, a lot of Western leaders were there to, to um, commemorate the Normandy uh, invasion, we were in a reception and President Obama was far across the room, and it was just he and I as Americans in the room, and i was in a conversation with putin's national security advisor and putin comes up uh and he's talking and he he basically puckers his lips and blows me a kiss <laughs> and he says to his national security advisor she's quite beautiful for a national security advisor uh and you know just gross yeah and what a you know And, you know as you would imagine you know misogynistic and <laughs> condescending um so that was uh that was one of my many interactions with Putin.
0: Yeah, I hear that I, I want to say that he had some kind of a similar reaction to your predecessor, Condoleezza Rice, too. Uh,
1: I can't so. speak for her, and I don't I don't know have a similar story on her yeah. behalf to relate, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Well, before we go, I just have to ask about something Alyssa Mastermonico told me a few months ago. She says that you are known to throw down on the dance floor and have some wicked dance moves. I won't ask for a demo right now, but where do you get your dance skills from? And do you have a signature move?
1: I, I, you know what? I love to dance. And um, of all the things that I can possibly hope to do when I feel like, you know, we're under stress or uh, things are getting heavy, it's having a good throwdown. down. Um, and so I got <laughs> lots of moves and <laughs> I'm not going to call out one over the other. Okay. But I do write in the book about um, the last night of the last presidential trip yeah. overseas uh, in two thousand and sixteen, after trump had won we 're in Lima, Peru, and the all of the traveling Obama team minus the president um, go out to a nightclub and One thing the Obama team know how to do is to, is to party <laughs> and we had to party to end all parties uh, with tons of dancing and tons of pisco sours. and yeah. I had to get up early the next morning to join the President in his meetings. The rest of the folks were many of them were able to sleep in. Um, and you know, I'd had too much to drink and I'd done way too many low moves on the dance floor. And when I got out of bed, my knees buckled and I could barely get to the shower. Uh, (laughs) but that was how we rolled. And you know, that's sort of indicative of how I love to dance and, uh, What I've done to torture my body in the process.
0: Little did you know, it would be a three or four year hangover now. Oh my gosh. Well, again, Susan Rice's book is Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Susan Rice, it's been such a pleasure. It's been a lot
1: of fun. Thank you so much, Ben.
0: Thanks again to Susan Rice for coming on the show. Order her new book, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These high-potency vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. That means no magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide, and zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Try their selection of heart-healthy full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, fresh, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Find these and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.